This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. <laughs> Welcome to Libri. I'm not going to say the whole thing again. Uh, my name is Joshua Chestnut. This lecture tonight is called On Being Politically Homeless. It's part of our fall lecture series. There's a few more coming up. Uh, next week is Dave Friedrich on Sabbath. And then two weeks from now is Dick Kai's on Outrage. So exciting things. Good, good, good thought-inducing uh, Friday evenings. So mark your calendars. Um, yeah. But as you've probably heard, uh, there is an election going on right now. You might have heard this. It's a big thing on Twitter. People are talking about this. But it, it struck me today that we are under 20 days away uh, from the election. And this has <clears throat> felt like a long season in any number of ways uh, with, with COVID, uh, with all of the economic collapse that happened. Uh, the racial awakening and, and protests that happened this summer. Uh, lots of things have been going on apart from this. Uh, so I, I, I speak just knowing that people are exhausted already uh, and exhausted from all those other things, but also this topic. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that. I know it can be a heavy thing. But I want to jump in. And uh, for those uh, watching on Facebook, we had a little malfunction. My PowerPoint slides couldn't get on the live stream on the video, but there's some video or slides here. But anyway, you'll just have to imagine uh, when they come in. But I, on the way, as a way in, I want to use this quote from C.S. Lewis uh, uh, in his essay called Membership. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, A Sikh society much, uh, must think much about politics as a sick man must think much about his digestion. To ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice for the one as for the other. But if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, <laughs> then that which was undertaken for the sake of health has itself become a new and deadly disease. Uh, yeah, it's timely, I think. It's good. And as fraught and as complicated as politics in America are right now, it would be easy to stick our heads in the sand, sort of wish a pox on both parties until the election is done. Uh, but our society is sick. Uh, and so for the sake of our national health, we need to think about political matters. We need to do some real thinking and also engage in some real action. Uh, the temptation, uh, the understandable temptation to avoid politics altogether can be cowardice and lethal. Uh, but at the same time, Lewis's words are a real warning for those of us who have become singularly fixated on politics, especially over the last four years. And we've allowed political discourse in America 
to have a larger role in the formation of our self-understanding and our identity than I think it should. Lewis's words remind us that our self-righteous social media silos, our angry partisan infotainment, thinking here of Fox News, MSNBC, the president's unhinged and undisciplined Twitter feed, none of this is the natural food of the mind. We think about political matters so that we can think about other matters, things that matter to us, our neighbors, our friends, professional basketball, music, (laughs) art, food, the good things in life. My fear is that of these two propensities, the second one, gorging ourselves on what is not the natural food of the mind, is our proclivity right now. And it is only prolonging and worsening our society's illness. My concern is that in the way that uh, partisan politics and their respective media extensions have captured and hold captive our political imaginations and our moral vision, especially for people of faith. I don't exempt myself from this. I'm not free from hypocrisy, from defensiveness, from tribal loyalty. These are issues I'm learning to deal with myself. But my thesis tonight is simple enough, I hope. As Christians, we do not believe certain things, behave in certain ways, or vote along certain lines because we belong to political parties or political groups. The word belong is crucial here. Belonging is a word about identity formation. Who we belong to is part of who we are. As Christians, we don't need to find our belonging through political affiliation, especially the partisan political affiliation today. And we don't gain our moral vision from certain political platforms. As self-evident as this might seem, I think it is worth saying, uh, because we all too often have the matter backwards. We behave in certain ways, we vote in certain ways, we believe certain things to be true because we understand ourselves to be members of political parties. But as members of the body of Christ, we join the work of political parties or groups because of what we already believe, because we already have a belonging, an identity, a moral vision, and a cause that has been given to us from somewhere else. Political parties have been so effective in capturing our political imaginations and shaping our moral vision. And by that, I just mean the things we really care about, what we think matters, what is right, what is wrong, what we care for. I think they've captured these things for a multitude of reasons, but the one I want to talk to, talk about tonight, is the fact that so many of us feel like we're lost in the cosmos. We experience our world as a place of existential and spiritual alienation. We're looking for a cause. We're looking for a belonging. We're looking for a tribe. We're looking for an identity that can tether us down to earth and help us step into our own lives with some sort of purpose. And angry partisan politics can really provide an avenue for this for all sorts of people, for so many of us. So this is sort of my way in, and this is where I want to go with the rest of our time. I want to talk about an idea of existential homelessness. I want to look at five political impulses of the early Christian movement. 
I want to consider how to vote, how not to vote, maybe, uh, and then briefly end with a liturgical audit for this election season. So we're going to start with existential homelessness. So there is a concept, uh, a word, that comes from Sigmund Freud, and it's been rattling around in my head for the last few years. And uh, with any apologies to any remaining Freudians out there, just in general, uh, but in particular, because I'm not really going to use the word the way Freud uses the word. I just like the word. I think it's just a good word, and it's a word that has helped me make sense of both our cultural moment with all its contingencies, with all its anger and outrage, uh, and, and it's also helped me make sense of something more basic about the human condition, something that is perhaps more universal, something that's true about myself as well. And so the word is unheimlich. I like saying the word unheimlich. If maybe there's German speakers here or elsewhere and I've mispronounced it, please tell me later in private. Uh, but the word literally means unhomey, not at home. Uh, uh, it's often translated in Freudian psychology as the uncanny I'm not using it in that sense. But to situate this this word and why I think this word is helpful, I think it's worth noting we all have moments where we experience our corner of the world in a way that everything feels right. Things are as they should be. And in those moments, we pause to give thanks. We step back to sort of take it all in. We slow down to suck it all up, uh, or just to soak it all up, not suck it all up. Uh, but yeah, maybe we suck it up, I don't know. Uh, but in these moments, uh, we are known, and we're safe. There is meaning, there is abundant goodness, there is delight. We belong. We belong and have this sense of being at home. Maybe you get this sitting around a campfire with friends, an evening, uh, a long evening with good food and good wine and good conversation around a table. Maybe you feel it when you stand on the precipice of a mountain that you just climbed and you look out over the horizon and it's just so far and so vast. Maybe it's watching your child sleep, finally sleep. <laughs> Maybe it's you feel this when you stand back after completing a project. You You just made something. You did something. You completed a book manuscript. You made a shelf that the book manuscript can sit on. (laughs) You painted a room that the shelf that the manuscript sitting on can all be in. (laughs) These are, are things we feel good. We feel things are right in the world. But however long these moments last, they slip through our fingers. Reality eventually comes rushing back. It's not always hard and painful and difficult but it can turn into the mundane, the predictable, but it can be painful. The dinner ends, the shelf gets broken, the book proposal doesn't get accepted. Our children wake up and immediately disobey us. We lose a job, we are betrayed by a friend, we get a terrible diagnosis. And so we know that the world is is just unheimlich. It's not homey, it's not comfy. And and the idea with this is that it should be. It could be. It's not just that it's uncomfortable, but that it doesn't have to be this way. It should be different. 
And it's disorienting because when we experience something like this, it feels like we've been kicked out of a place where we belonged. Writing uh, really in light of the fact that there's over 65 million refugees in the world today, commentator Ian Chambers reminds us that to be a stranger in a strange land, to be lost, is perhaps the condition most typical of contemporary life. But Chambers speaks of this sojourner-like condition, not being at home. He says it doesn't just characterize those who've had to leave their actual homes because of wars they didn't start, because of famines, because of natural disasters, because of some form of persecution. He says the migrant's sense of being rootless, of living between worlds, between a lost past and a non-integrated present, is perhaps the most fitting metaphor of this postmodern condition. This sense of a lost past and a non-integrated present is difficult. It is exhausting for so many of us. It's not homey. We don't like this. Humans are meaning-making creatures. And as strangers in a strange land, we can scan our horizon looking for a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, a cause, a purpose. We look for a home. This was the way 4th century North African theologian and bishop uh, Augustine understood his life. He told the story of his life as, as all these are points of arrival. He left his small home. He pursued life in the big city. He pursued relationships. He pursued a respectable career. He pursued philosophical community. And in each one of these stations, each one of these places, the question he was asking was, will you give me rest? Will this be a home to me? And you should read the confessions time and again. It's like that for a while, but it doesn't last. His heart is restless. It's looking for a place for rest. It's looking for a home. And jumping from the 4th century to today, I think our political parties aren't just presenting us with unbiased, scientifically deduced platforms or policies. They're not even really offering us electable politicians these days. But to so many of us who feel adrift in the world, lost in the cosmos, existentially homeless, they're offering us a sense of home, a way to belong, a cause to get behind. And this is a powerful offer, even if it's only made implicitly. This sense of belonging, of identity, of purpose is a path that helps us navigate the unheimlich of our world. These were the sorts of things that were once sort of the bread and butter of religion. Meaning, purpose, community, rituals. These are part and parcel of what our political parties or our political affiliations are offering us today. And on top of this, not only do they offer us this sense of home and belonging, they each sort of come with something that would be akin to what Christian theologians call the fall. A fall narrative, the reason why things are bad in your life and bad in the world. It's often either oppressive conservatives or these deconstructing liberals, right? They are the ones. Uh, so these parties offer us meaning, but they offer also, they also offer us an enemy. And the power of having a shared enemy It's compelling, but it also blinds us in many ways. It blinds us to reality. This is articulated 
in what Alan Jacobs in his book, How to Think, calls the, the logic of the repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other. He writes about this, and he says, this sort of way of thinking uh, prevents us from recognizing others as our neighbors, even when they are quite literally our neighbors. If I'm consumed by this belief that that person over there is both other and repugnant, I may never discover that my favorite TV show is also their favorite TV show. That we like some of the same books, though not precisely for the same reasons. That we know what it's like to nurse a loved one through a long illness. All of which is to say, I may all too easily forget that political and social and religious differences are not the whole of human experience. This also keeps us from asking questions of why would someone be such a repugnant cultural other? Why would they choose to belong elsewhere? to that other side. It blinds us from that. It blinds us from the fact that often they're just as lost in the cosmos as we are, as we feel. And this existential sense of a home and a belonging that the parties offer us doesn't just blind us to others. It actually binds us together, which which what I might call the agreeable cultural equivalent, someone who is pretty much just like me, on all the issues that I think are the important issues. There's this powerful binding effect. It blinds us and it binds us. And it binds us to choose often our tribe, those who we think we belong to, over the truth. Or, in the words and the research of Jeffrey Cohen, party over policy. Uh, Has anyone heard of the party over policy study? It was uh, Cohen was uh, a researcher at Yale in the early 2000s. And he gave a group of people two very different welfare policy proposals. One of them rather stringent, sort of stereotypically Republican. The other quite generous, stereotypically Democrat. Cohen gave out these proposals to the participants, but he randomly assigned the policies with a party. So this one is the Republican Party, even if the sort of substance of it wasn't. And this one's the Democratic uh, policy, even if it's not. And even when the policies didn't align with the stereotypical or traditional party ideology, Cohen found that those participating, almost without fail, approved the policy they were told belonged to their party, even when the policy didn't match or align with the said party's normal approach. Cohen was really surprised by this, and he kept giving more and more information, (laughs) hoping to sway them. But participants dug their heels in and kept choosing the policies that they were told matched their parties. He took it even one step further. He challenged them. He said, you need to write a letter to the editor of your local newspaper in favor of this policy. And these people wrote heartfelt letters, believing their letters could maybe sway public opinion. But they wrote letters for policies that didn't even align with their party's normal stance. Uh, there's so much to say, I think, about, about this study. I think it shows us lots of things. It's provocative. But it points to the way that our political involvement is not simply a, a, a way to pursue a common good, a way for us uh, to sort of get things done in the world. It shows a, a way in which we find our belonging. 
In this matter, our parties aren't merely dispensing policies and platforms. They're sort of like existential real estate agents. They're realtors. They're offering us a place to live, a place to stay, a belonging, an identity, a cause, this sense of a home that we want. And I think we could all naturally go take the next step that if politicians are like realtors, they're probably also like slumlords, right? They don't really care about the people who live in the homes they provide. They're, 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 they're motivated by greed or something else. But my concern is not just that the parties have become realtors and slumlords. I think they dictate what political allegiance looks like. Uh, and they act more like a strict homeowners association than even a slumlord. The purpose of a homeowners association is to manage the way a neighborhood appears. So whether it's the colors you can paint your house, how high your mailbox can be, sort of whether or not you can hang laundry out on the back line. If you want to live in this place, in this neighborhood, you have to abide by the homeowners association's rules on what's acceptable. So they dictate how we can act, how we can think, what we believe, what is important to us. This is the idea of giving us a moral vision. But I want to say again, as Christians, we don't believe certain things or behave in certain ways or vote in ways because we belong to political parties or groups. As members of the body of Christ, we join political parties because of something we already believe, because we have a belonging elsewhere. Christians are not pro-life because the Republican Party is pro-life. We were pro-life long before the Republicans were interested in this. And if it becomes less politically expedient, we will continue to be so. And in the same way, if we, if we believe in the dignity of all, of all people as Christians, we also fight to end racism. This is, and we don't do that just because we belong to the Democratic platform. We do that because of something we already believe before we enter into this. One of my favorite ways of sort of conceiving how we get an identity uh, from elsewhere, how we belong elsewhere, is through Paul's image uh, in his letter to the Philippians that we're citizens of heaven. This was one of my least favorite verses or ideas in the Bible for a long time because it seemed to imply like we, we, our citizenship is there, so we should just like worry about there and we don't have to worry about stuff here. But I think that has Paul's image backwards. I think it's not, it's not quite right. So Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, and what that meant was that though they, they were, they existed outside of the official boundaries of the Roman Empire, they were given all the benefits of Rome. They were given citizenship even though they lived outside of it, which meant they don't have to pay taxes, the military will protect them, uh, they get all of the good things being in the empire offers. But the way the deal worked was what they had to do to receive that, to be citizens, to be this colony, they had to spread the culture of Rome to the world that was around them. So through architecture through art, through philosophy, through cuisine, through all of these things. They spread the culture of Rome. They get the benefits of Rome. This is what citizenship looked like for people in a colony like Philippi. So I think Paul's image here is that as citizens of heaven, we get, of course, we get the benefits from heaven, but our work is to spread the culture of heaven here on earth where we find ourselves. Which brings me to a fascinating book, 
called Destroyer of the Gods by historian Larry Hurtado. Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. This is Baylor Press, I think 2017 or 2016. Uh, and Hurtado, in this fascinating book, that has nothing directly to do with the topic we're talking about tonight, but I think can uh, point us in some helpful directions. He's trying to answer the question of why on earth did people become Christians in the first few centuries? There was no social benefit, no social capital, but Christianity had this crazy rise in the Roman Empire. Why were people converting? And Hurtado offers a lot of different things, but part of it is the distinctive social group, the distinctive social project that Christianity was. And he highlights many things. I want to look at five characteristics of this community to sort of see what maybe we could call their political impulses, what motivated them. So the first thing is that they are a multiracial and multi-ethnic community. Hurtado writes that in the Roman era, as was typical throughout antiquity and in many societies to this day, what we would call religious identity was conferred at birth at the same time and the same moment that one's ethnic identity was conferred. This is because the gods were always linked to ethnic groups and were just part of this package deal. Religion and ethnicity in the ancient world belonged together. Uh, Your ethnicity would determine your religion, so these things went hand in hand. But then Hurtado comments about how along come these Christians, and they make this audacious claim that there's actually only one God over all these local and regional gods, and that all people should put their faith in him. Hurtado insists that this manner of a trans-ethnic religious group was a Christian innovation in the Roman world. Hurtado writes, early Christian religious identity was not tied to one's ethnicity and did not involve a connection to a particular ethnic group. Early Christian associations cut across ethnic lines, taking in people of various nations, their only connection to believers in other places and other nations being a shared religious commitment. We can see some of this idea in Ephesians 2. We can see it uh, in, in Paul's description of communities in Romans 16. Uh, there's more to say, but we're going to keep going. The second characteristic, the second political impulse, was a commitment to care for the poor and the marginalized. While it was customary in the ancient world to care for members of one's own family or kin group that were poor, the idea of caring for anyone who was poor was shocking and was considered completely foolish. The early Christians would help anyone who was in need. The pagan emperor Julian famously derided Christians for foolishly not only caring for their own poor, but for caring for our poor as well. Questions of deserving poor versus undeserving poor, which take up way too much space in many Christian communities today, don't seem to be part of what animated the earliest Christians. They cared for all people. That didn't work into their moral calculus. The third characteristic that I think is worth noting is non-retaliation, a commitment to forgiveness. This is a generous spirit. Unlike so much of the ancient world, if you killed or attacked Christians in the first few centuries, their response was not revenge. Christians didn't organize and retaliate when they were attacked. Early Christians weren't strategic 
in getting revenge, but in fact they placed a high value on following Jesus' call to love their enemies, even if their enemies were the culturally repugnant others. And not to just love them, but to forgive them. This was in part because this was a community that understood themselves as forgiven people. The next thing is early Christians were unambiguously against abortion and infanticide. I think to sort of give a picture, uh, uh, we need to back up a little bit to get our heads around what the culture the early Christians emerged in was like. These are a few lines from a Roman man who Hurtado quotes named Hilaron. He's writing a letter to his wife, Alice. This is around 1 BC, they think. Um, and he greets his wife and he greets other relatives who live in their home. And then he begs her, Hilaron begs her, to take care of our little one, presumably their child. He promises to send money as soon as he gets paid. And then he refers to Alice's pregnancy and her fast, fast approaching birth. And he writes, if it's a boy, let it be. If it's a girl, cast it out. As harsh as this sounds, directly after this, he goes on to express tender affection for Alice. How could I ever forget you? I beg you not to be anxious about all of these things. Hurtado notes that obviously this man was not a monster. He was capable of expressing tender feelings. But he wasn't unusual in his time to speak about infant exposure. Now, the reasons for infanticide or exposure as well as abortion are often hidden from us in antiquity. But historians believe that it was often very similar to situations today. It's due to poverty and scarce resources. Yet in Hilaron and Alice's case, it's gendered. If the child was to be a boy, they would keep it. If it was a girl, they would expose it. And the three likely endings to an exposed child would be one that it would die fairly soon after. The second is the child would be found by a slaver and sold into slavery. Hurtado notes that the Roman Empire needed around 500,000 new slaves annually. Um, The third option was that the child would be found by a slaver and sold into a brothel. There is no Roman law against this practice. Hurtado writes, uh, while there wasn't uh, much disapproval, there probably was grief, there was not very much shame. In the words of another scholar, though, we co- when it comes to Christians, we come to a distinct parting of ways between Christians and the general Greco-Roman practice around this. Christians had skin in the game. They selflessly took in these exposed children into their homes and into their communities. There were no means by which this culturally insignificant and marginalized group could elect a senator who could sort of change the laws about this. Their power to change this situation was the power of their own homes, their own table, and extending that and welcoming that to these exposed children. There's more to say. Uh, about all of these things. The last characteristic is that early Christians were a sexual counterculture. As a matter of context, listen to the words of 4th century orator Demosthenes. He says, We men have concubines for pleasure, female slaves for our daily care, which is a sexual euphemism, 
and wives to give us legitimate children and to be guardians of our household. When it comes to sex, human sexuality and Roman law in, in the, the world that the Christians emerged in, Harvey Weinstein would have been the quintessential Roman man. Hurtado writes, he doesn't say that, I said that, but uh, Hurtado writes, sex with prostitutes and courtesans and young boys was not only tolerated and even affirmed, uh, it was affirmed as a hedge against adultery, against porneia, this idea of porneia, which was, which was something a free man could only engage in, could only be accused of uh, if he slept with another man's wife or a free-born virgin. Other than that, men sort of had their choice of whatever they wanted to do. And it wasn't just tolerated, it was celebrated. The sexual use and abuse of children fills the lyrics of pagan writers of the day like Juvenal, Patronus, Horace, Strato, Lucian, and the list goes on. Hurtado actually works with some other scholars, and he says the language against the abuse of children in the Roman world originates in Christian community. There wasn't even... Sort of, there wasn't language uh, to to negatively describe this behavior. This was a Christian innovation and distinctive in the ancient world. It was without precedent. And part of this sexual counterculture is highlighted well in a different book by another historian named Kyle Harper. Uh, his book, From Shame to Sin. And so what Harper is after in this, uh, in this book, one of the things he wants to say is that teaching of Paul, that uh, I used the word porneia before, adultery. Paul did something radical in the ancient world. He said, apart from the sexual activity between a man and a woman within marriage that was consensual, any sexual behavior outside of that is porneia, is off-limits. And, and this was a radically democratizing ethic in a way, because in the ancient world, it just, women and children and slaves had no power to resist. So Paul is equalizing the fields here in some ways. Harper spends a fair bit of time talking about ancient virgins that we tend to read, or virgins in the early church, we tend to read through the lens of, of purity culture and of discomfort with one's body or asceticism. And he said that's missing the point. In the sexual economies of, of Rome, women had no say over their bodies. And he said it was in these Pauline communities that women were able to say, this is my body, you can't touch it. Paul is taking away enormous power from upper-class men in the Roman world through his sexual ethic. So these are five characteristics of how, uh, what the early church looked like in some way. Five uh, political and social uh, proclivities or impulses. This is how they did politics. And this completely defies the standard approaches of the left and the right today. Early Christians were multicultural. They cared for the poor. They extended forgiveness. They were ideologically and practically pro-life. And they embodied a sexual counterculture. Where do you see this sort of moral vision or political imagination? Who runs on a sort of ticket like this? Maybe Kanye West? <laughs> He's got a very, very vague policies, but uh, they're interesting. Or, or, or the American Solidarity Party? It's just clearly not the sort of political priorities that the Republicans or the Democrats are on about. 
the first two might sound like they're progressive, and the second two might sound, or the last two might sound like they're conservative. Uh, but all the while, the middle one doesn't sound like anyone. <laughs> Forgiveness, kindness, non-retaliation, especially to enemies, this sounds like no one today. This middle characteristic is an affront to the prized virtue of both the left and the right of outrage, of gracelessness, and of dismissal of the repugnant cultural other. Self-righteous outrage hinders humility and self-examination, but it's all over the performative politics of Washington, and it's all over my Twitter feed. And it's coming as much from the White House uh, or from uh, cultures of cultural Christianity as it is from sort of radical left cancel culture, whatever that is. The tendency to make precious and indulge our outrage, of course, helps us feel good. And there are very legitimate reasons for many people to be angry right now. I'm not trying to sort of make a blanket dismissal of anger. But there is this anger that is in the air that we can inherit. But it insulates us, I believe. It blinds us from the necessary political work of self-examination. Uh, and self-examination is an impulse, is a virtue that only comes if we have a solid or stable sense of self. When we can be critiqued, when we can listen to it, when we can take it seriously and not just throw what-about-isms back at people. This manner of politics that the early Christians were on about, this way of following Jesus, it was offensive but it was also compelling to the ancient world. And it questions the legitimacy and the adequacy of both political parties. Um, Michael, or Michael Ware, Justin Gibney, and Chris Butler, in their great book, Compassion and Conviction. This comes out of a, a, a political think tank organization called the AND Campaign that I think has been one of the most helpful voices in my life over the last four years, really since 2016. Um, they're a wonderful organization. They have podcasts, lots of resources. But this summer they released this book that I highly recommend. And they say in, in here, there's nothing wrong with being conflicted about how both parties are right in part and wrong in part. The bigger problem is when Christians are unaware or unbothered by the faults on the side they prefer. This isn't to suggest a false equivalency between the two parties. One party might be wrong on more issues at a given time, but we must realize both fall well short of the biblical standard. They go on to say, when it comes to political ideology today, to be conservative or progressive at all times and on every issue is not only to be intellectually lazy and easily manipulated, it is also unfaithful. Theological conservatism and ideological conservatism are not the same thing. The far left's conception of social justice isn't always consistent with a biblical understanding. Christians' moral vision or political imagination don't need to be beholden to the major party platforms, to their priorities. That's because politics needs to be reframed, uh, Gibney, Ware, and Butler argue, as a limited but essential forum for pursuing the well-being of our neighbors. It is limited in both its scope and its effectiveness. 
And part of, I think, its major limitation we see in the act of voting. And so I want to transition into having some thoughts on voting. I'm going to drink water for one second. We live in an age that places a tremendously high value on self-expression. From the sort of diet we want to follow, the clothes we want to wear, the music we want to listen to, whether we're iPhone people, whether we're Android people, all of these decisions we make, to some extent, we understand as expressing our identity, who we are. So in this climate, it's understandable for us to assume that politics... And in particular, the act of voting is just another forum for self-expression, perhaps even self-actualization. Our vote carries the weight of who we are. This places a tremendous moral burden upon our vote. It goes without saying that our vote should have some sense of a moral burden. Voting is, is a serious issue. I don't want to imply that there's no moral burden. Yet the sort of moral burden that voting as self-expression carries with it is ill-fitted. This way of understanding voting is not in the best interest of voters, nor is it inherently a part of our politics, but it is quite beneficial to the interests of political parties because it pushes us towards a wholesale endorsement. It pushes us, if this vote is me expressing who I am, and I'm voting for this person, it pushes us towards that sense of belonging. Michael Ware, who is a member of the Ann campaign, actually he just left the Ann campaign this week to do another another thing, which was a, a blow to me, but he's a great, he's a, a very helpful political thinker. Uh, he reminds us that your vote is not an unmediated expression of your identity. Your vote is a choice between options you didn't choose yourself. If you view your vote as an educated, pure expression of your will, it can be debilitating. To stick with our imagery here of homes and real estate agents uh, and homeowner associations, your vote is not proof of your residency. It, It doesn't need to be understood as evidence of where you belong primarily. Where it goes on, he says, for Christians for whom faithfulness is both means and end, to view your vote as a totalizing statement of who you are, what you believe, inevitably leads to disintegration. The disintegration happens because if my vote is an expression of who I am, of where I belong, it makes the necessary political work of critique very difficult especially critiquing one's own side. And so this disintegration is probably fairly familiar to many of us. This need to excuse, to explain away, to overlook, and even defend a party or a candidate when they are manifestly a moral nightmare. Because we did not choose the candidates who will represent us, we need to understand, we need not understand our vote as a proof of residence in their tribe, a full expression of where we belong. A vote is neither a complete endorsement and it's not a means of self-expression. It is a limited but effective means by which we can love our neighbor and pursue human flourishing through electing capable representatives whose policies promote justice. Can you repeat that, 
Uh, yes. It is a limited but effective means by which we can love our neighbors and pursue human flourishing through electing capable representatives whose policies promote justice. Now, a lot of influential and vocal evangelical leaders like John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Al Mohler, Franklin Graham, and until recently, Jerry Falwell Jr., and if you don't know who any of those people are, you don't need to Google them. It's okay. But they have made very strong cases. They've made it clear that the only vote cast in good faith can be for the sitting president. Their rationale is usually framed through the lens of abortion, though Falwell was more direct about the economy. So they prioritize one of the five political impulses that animated early Christians that flew or grew out of a biblical vision. For these men to vote for 45 a second time appears to be a way to express our faith and show where we belong. This, and I want to be careful with my words here, I think this is cowardly nonsense. I think it is manipulative, it is self-serving, it is narrow-minded, and it is beholden to a partisan belonging that Christians don't need. The words and actions of these Christian leaders are profoundly disappointing. Mm -hmm. If for no other reason is that they have come alongside with an overlooking and excusing and even defending the manifestly undisciplined, corrupt, misogynistic, egotistical, racist, divisive, and petty nature of our president. It has perhaps afforded them something they didn't have before, proximity to power, but it has cost them a coherent sense of moral authority by endorsing without critique. The president now represents them as part of their self-expression. And if Christians are unable to critique a president that they have perhaps voted for, because voting in their minds is some sense of an expression of who they are and of where they belong, it doesn't take long to see what sort of trouble we have gotten ourselves into. No matter his stance on abortion, religious liberty, or the economy, a president who has repeatedly neglected pro-democracy, pro-human rights activists in Hong Kong, who has remained silent on the estimated million-plus Uyghur Muslims who are literally in concentration camps right now in China, who has blamed an incoherent response to a global pandemic on others, who has closed the door of our country to legitimate refugee seekers, many of whom are Christians, who has empowered and emboldened white supremacist groups throughout the country, all the while normalizing a political discourse that is undisciplined, ungenerous, and uninformed. If we cannot critique a president that way, then Lord have mercy on us. The humiliation of the church in America has just begun. We have to be able to call a spade a spade. To vote for a candidate does not mean we cannot critique them or hold their feet to the fire when they are incoherent, when they lie, when they sow seeds of division, when they use their office for personal or familial gain that has nothing to do with the welfare of this country. Voting is not a means of self-expression. It is not proof of residence to where you belong. That is, unless you write in a candidate that maybe you know. It is always a concession between candidates you did not personally choose. And while it is the beginning, perhaps, of political engagement, 
It is never the end of political engagement. And I think this has to be said especially for understandably disenchanted evangelical young people who are going to vote for Joe Biden in this coming election or some other party. They were under, they're understandably disenfranchised or disenchanted because they were told by their parents that you don't speak meanly towards other people. You don't make fun of people. You don't lie and you don't cheat. And then the same people that have told them that those are part of the basic moral way of being in the world have now endorsed a candidate who routinely does this. That incoherence is pushing them away. But we have to realize if we vote for someone, we are allowed to critique them. We can push back. And so one, I think, very interesting, very helpful example of this are Democrats for Life. This is, uh, you can't see it if you're watching this on Facebook, for those of you who can here. This is a full-page ad from September 20th of this year, uh, uh, New York Times, a full-page ad that has over 100 elected officials who are Democrats, who have joined the Democratic Party, but are pro-life, and they are calling the leadership of the party to a more moderate position. They are reminding the party that actually nearly 30% of Democrats identify as pro-life. 44% of independents also identify as pro-life. And that 80% of Americans don't agree with an abortion-at-any-time policy. They're challenging their own party, challenging their own party to say, you claim to have space that is inclusive. Will you be inclusive of us? Can we disagree on this and still work towards other common goods? So we, if we vote, if we, if we join these or a political group, we can still push back. As people of faith, as Christians, we have our spiritual and existential need, needs met outside of the sphere of angry, angry partisan politics. We do not vote and act in certain ways or believe things because we belong to certain political parties or affiliation. In that sense, we are politically homeless, but we belong to Christ. Our need for belonging, for a home, for a purpose, for an identity are met elsewhere than in the realm of angry partisan politics. That said, we join political parties in order to pursue a particular sort of political end, the promotion of multi-ethnic communities, care for the poor and the marginalized, grace and forgiveness becoming part of our cultural currency again. Whole life matters, care for the unborn as well as the elderly and space for, for, for different sexual, I'm not sure how to say that the right way, but uh, for, for the traditional Christian sexual ethic. And to belong, to, belong to, the, to belong to Christ is a belonging that's open to us as well as the culturally repugnant other. It is a belonging that transcends party differences. This, I think, animates some of what Paul says towards the end of Romans when he says time and again, Welcome one another, welcome one another, knowing that we're different from one another. So I'm going to take a hard break and end by offering something of a liturgical audit for these final weeks of this election season. Uh, And by this, I mean an evaluation of the practices in our own life, in particular, 
our media intake. And I'm, I'm getting these ideas and these words from Caitlin Schess in her book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Um, and, and by liturgy, it just means any repeated, regular, embodied practice that we do, which includes watching the news and scrolling through Twitter and what we take in. And so these are, this is an audit. These are questions that can help us make sense of what we're taking in. Because what we do with our bodies, these practices, it forms who we are. And so she offers these questions. Who or what is this asking me to love or to trust? Who or what is this asking me to hate or to fear? And what kind of good life is this describing? Sometimes that feels implicit in these in, in our political intake. I think these are helpful questions for us, especially in, in, in a time when uh, there's often more heat than light uh, in our political discourse. Joshua, can you just repeat those for those who can't see? For those who can't see, it's who or what is this asking me to love or to trust? Who or what is this asking me to hate or to fear? And what kind of good life is this describing? I'm going to put them in the chat too, Facebook. Great, great. Uh, and I want to end. I want to end just sort of circling back to Augustine and his his book, The Confessions, which is arguably the first autobiography in sort of the Western tradition. And we can think about his story, the way that he told the story of his life, as this great life, someone with exceptional gifts sort of a, 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 an, an exceptional person who did amazing things that you'll never do because you're not capable of doing them. And those are often the type of stories that get turned into movies. Um, but that's not what his story is. In many ways, his story, I think, more resembles the stories that are told weeknights in church basements at AA meetings where people say, uh, recovery stories, where people say, this week I messed up. And the response from the folks there is, I know. I've been there, too. I know what it's like to mess up. Recovery stories function in a different way than sort of great life stories. Mm -hmm. And I think as we look out into a world where people feel so lost, lost in the cosmos, feel as though they don't have a home in this unheimlich world, I think instead of just getting angry at them, perhaps because they're the culturally repugnant other, we can say we've we've also looked for a sense of belonging in those places, and those belongings haven't sustained us. But we found a different sort of belonging, which gives us a different sort of identity, a different sort of way of being in the world, and a different way of going about politics. So that is where I'm going to stop, and we can have a discussion for as long as... Actually, as long as I say, I suppose. <laughs> but that is the end of my prepared statements. So if anyone wants to push back on anything, disagree with anything, help me think better about things or have questions, um, yeah, let's chat.
I saw Marty first. No, someone else's hand up. Go. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is just a just a very brief comment. I heard somebody refer to the um, the position of those evangelical leaders that you mentioned, for whom the only issue is pro-life. Yeah. Is that it's actually pro-life until birth. Yeah. Because all those other issues that you talked about are also pro-life yeah. issues. And pro-life is yeah. is I mean, it's just another way of saying I think a lot of what you've laid out is that pro-life is actually a very very broad issue, which includes yeah all the other yeah, things the, that the early church that you mentioned that all the yeah. the early church cared for the poor and yeah. Yeah. Can include the environment. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they didn't cover all the bases. Uh, no, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't have to think about it in the same yeah. environment. But. Were you going to say something, Ben or Dave? Go ahead, Dave. It's not a question. I just thought that was very helpful. That mm. those five points you listed and how, mm. yeah, one party might emphasize well, maybe not even sufficiently two, and another party another two. But Christians were emphasizing all five, but we're especially missing that middle one. That was really. Mm-hmm. Powerful, I think. Really helpful. Yeah. 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 Ben, did you or no? Uh, Yeah. First of all, just just asking you to define it, or just spell out a little bit more um, what you meant by something uh, about like the political discourse descending into uh, what about isms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Could you just explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah. uh, Just. it seems so. Someone will point out something that's <laughs> uh, something that is just manifestly wrong in a candidate, and then instead of addressing that, they'll say, "Well, what about your guy on this, or what about this inconsistency that your tribe has, or what about as as a way to deflect and." Uh, yeah, and I, I I understand that impulse, but I, I think the trying to the hope I guess is having a, a stable enough sense of self that when someone cr- says you're wrong on this yeah. or your guy's wrong on this, to say I got to think about it. Mm-hmm. And I think the sometimes the what about ism also functions because. Um, on social, on social media and just everybody needs to have an opinion right away on everything. Yeah. And it's sometimes really hard to form a coherent opinion because you just need time. And so you need time to process what on earth has gone on. Um, and you just don't know all the facts. So instead of saying, give me, give me a little bit more time, let me do some research, let me when you look into this, you just say, yeah, well, what about, you know, what about, you know, the emails, or what about, you yeah. and, um, so that's all, that's all I meant by that. Like, yeah, that is that's helpful, yeah. So. Something you see function in individual relationships <clears throat> all the time. Yeah. Sort of deflecting heat by, yeah. and just. Yeah. And it, like, never ends, because both sides. Yeah. The, the sort of nonsense both sides. Yeah. Go about doing is sort of endless. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tasha, would yeah. you just mind telling people that are watching that they can they can put questions and okay. messages? There's about twenty people watching. Right okay. So if, if those that are watching, if they have any comments or pushback or questions, uh, feel free to write that in the um, 
Comments. In the comments. Yeah. So, yeah. Dick. Yeah. Um, I really, I really loved um, your talk. When you first put up the slide and you were like, this is what I'm going to go over, I was like, wow, this is, these are like <laughs> individual lecture topics. But yeah. you, I was, I really loved how you put it all together. Um, my question is about like what you said about how like voting is not an act of self-expression or like representation unless you write in yeah, yeah, someone. Yeah. Because, and that was sort of interesting to me because it's like like when you, whether you fill a bubble or you write someone in, like you're still choosing. And, and so like what difference does it make? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a technicality, but it's also interesting yeah, yeah. because yeah. it's like if you write someone in, does that really mean that like they're uh, like a self, they're like an expression or self-expression? Yeah. But like, or do we have to confine ourselves to these like sort of two-party? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if you have any comments about that yeah. as like self-expression versus like, um, like we're confined to a menu of options, so we yeah. kind of have to just work off of that menu. Yeah, and therefore, yeah. it's not a self-expression. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, I think I just meant it in the way that. Um, yeah, I, what is it? there's there's like twelve hundred people running for president still. I think okay. you, you know, that are, yeah, it's 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 outrageous. And so my only thought was for there are there are of those candidates, perhaps someone feels more like I could go one hundred percent with this person, where the main the main two parties again is it's choosing between two people that. It's, it's choosing to vote for someone that you didn't even choose. Um, and so I just thought, you know, if you write in uh, a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, you know, all the way party candidate, perhaps there's more, there's a possibility of more of like a, of an alignment <coughs> or, or possibly an endorsement. But that's like a vote uh, that I think has to be animated by a different yeah, I, I still don't totally have all my like thoughts completely clear on this, but mm-hmm. you know, I do think being faithful looks different, and I don't think there is only one Christian way to vote. Uh, I think you can be animated in different ways. I think we have to have discernment and realize what what when we vote for a candidate, where do we where do we align, where do we disagree, and how can things we disagree with, how could we perhaps form a mediating institution to pressure, put some pressure on or show uh, kind of move the party in it or move the candidate in a different direction um, to kind of hold their feet to the fire. Um, but yeah, voting for a, a candidate that you know will lose, uh, I think you have to have sort of a longer view of history uh, perhaps than, and and Understanding the significance of your political decisions are sort of given to you when you meet Jesus. Like, you don't know them in your lifetime, in a sense. And so, I don't want to sort of discount third-party voting um, or anything like that, or fourth or fifth or second voting, because there's a lot. But, uh, yeah, I do think some of those candidates are also less controlled by super PACs, they have. They're not beholden to all these investors, uh, and um, so sometimes then they can speak. I think with more of a coherent 
kind of vision. But yeah, I'm still figuring. I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on that? Well, or? I was just curious because, I mean, you. I think I think it's what you're describing in terms of like you have to be able to critique even even the party you vote for. Obviously, that's very healthy, and that like we have to have that mindset going into it. But I was also curious because that was kind of like the main like uh, force of what you were talking about, and yet like it just it seemed like you weren't really t- describing so much of like it, you kind of like took this idea of like um, like like a full expression mm-hmm. off the table. Like, whereas if there are 1,200 candidates that are running, like, maybe there is one that is, is like, a yeah. 99 or, yeah. like, 98% yeah, 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 of, yeah. like, or 90-whatever. Yeah. And, like, what, what like, value is it to vote for, for that person and actually have them be, like, a 95% uh, or, like, 99% yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, like, um, representation of what you might believe? Yeah. Like what is that? Like what's that, the what's the value of doing that? Uh, I mean, I think it has some integrity to it. Like I can respect, and like I said, I think it. Um, uh, I think it is. Uh, I think the significance of much of the decisions in our lives. We don't really know the deci- like what our decisions, the things we choose to do with our lives in general. Like that's something that's often hidden from us, uh, and I think. Our hope is that in the world to come, when God makes things right, um, some of that will be shown to us. So the call to be faithful. Um, so I think there can be an integrity there. Um, uh, so I think I think there's that. But I, I guess I just there's also other ways to sort of think about how to like strategically how how to vote as well, knowing. Like, I want to vote for this person, even though I disagree with... I mean, I think the, the Democrats for Life are a great example of a, of a, of a group of over 100 elected officials. It's the governor, the, the main guy is the governor of Louisiana, oh, really? uh, John Bell Graham. Oh. I think it's his name. Right here. John Bell Edwards. Oh, um, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, um... Finding his name now made me lose my train of thought. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think they are showing, like, look, we are not all in, but we do think this party will lead to more stability, more flourishing. Uh, like, in a sense, the, the good can outweigh the bad. And the things we disagree with, we want to push against. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, that Democrats for Life are not, it's not a faith-based organization. It's not primi- mm-hmm. It's not primarily people of faith saying we're pro-life. It's, it's actually just people with other like the other sort of worldviews or religions uh, who are Democrats, but also pro-life in that sense. So, it's an interesting organization. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Did I ramble? I just feel no, like I no, was get lost in my own sentence. Yeah. There. Yeah. Nate, were you going to say something? Yeah. Uh, be politically homeless sounds pretty lonely. Like, what would you suggest for somebody to find community of like-minded folks for support? Yeah, definitely chat rooms on the internet. No, I'm, just <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a. I mean, that's a good, that's a good thing. I mean, I think, 
think if our belonging is to something that sort of transcends the political groups that we've been given, I have friends who are Republicans, like pretty hardcore Republicans, and we realize there's more to life than our political disagreements. I'm not even like a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. I happen to be registered as one, but I have some significant <laughs> hesitations. Uh, but um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the hope is to find is to find relationships that aren't just with people that. What was the term of like? Uh, I used it. Uh, not, it's like the opposite of repugnant culture, repugnant cultural other. Just people that are just like us. Yeah, like agreeable cultural equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like finding 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 people that like, you know, like like basketball, like uh, dumpster diving, like veganism, <laughs> like drifting, uh, and like I, I do think, I do think finding kind of. I think those people are out there. And I think we're all, yeah, we're all, that, that sense of, like, just general, like, existential loneliness or, or unheimlich or whatever, kind of lost in the world. I think we can all feel that even if we have fairly coherent worldviews. Like, we can experience the world as a difficult place, as a place where we're very much alone. Um, and I think that transcends partisan. <laughs> The partisan divide, I think it's true on both sides. Yeah, Dick? Yeah, it's a remark and then just another sort of question to throw at you. I, I think this one interesting, I mean, we need to think of the, the role of a negative vote. I mean, if, for example, you presumably don't want to vote for Trump, you don't need to believe Biden was, it would be perfectly ideal, yeah. but your vote doesn't count against Trump if you vote for Mitt Romney. Mm hmm. Doesn't code, count against Trump unless you vote for Biden. Yeah, and so I, I think that's a perfectly legitimate mm -hmm. thing to add to the. Why is that, that true, though? Because we're limited to this in this two-party system, and if, if if Biden doesn't beat Trump, nobody's going to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to vote for somebody else to, 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 to throw away it's a throw your vote. Really, no matter how much you like for the other person. Yeah, yeah. in terms of like this next. The next four years of American yeah. right. American life, yeah. But I, I also I just so want to respect uh, people that sort of know what they're doing, uh, or they're going into that like completely sober, and know that in a sense that's what it's going to do. But that again, the significance of their all their political action, all their life is given to them ultimately by God and. So I, I don't know. I'm, I don't want to dictate. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah. saying this is a per perfectly a good motivation. Yeah, yeah. I have another question. Yeah. I mean, it comes from the ways that I've said some similar things in lectures standing yeah. where you're standing okay. in the last while, uh, which is that I, I've argued hard, I think as you would, by implication, for for Schaefer's idea of being co co belligerents, yeah. uh, you don't you can be a co belligerent with all sorts of person without being a full ally. Mm -hmm. You mentioned ally once, uh, which means you're not going to be standing with both feet in one, any one party. Yeah. Because I would say I'm pro life, but I'm also very pro environment, and it doesn't that means I'm it's homeless. No party. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And and. Uh, 
I've been criticized, and you may have heard that. Well, that means you have to step out of your engagement in the two poli uh, political parties, and you render yourself powerless. And it's one thing if you want to stand here as a liberty worker, uh, as we redo and say no. what we think. But if we want to be actually engaged, you've got to be part of one of these parties and get into their package somehow. Mm. And getting free from their package means you're you you sort of remove yourself from from leverage on the system. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt that very much. I mean, yeah. We've had some people here felt very strongly against what I was saying yeah. for that reason. Um, and I think about it afterwards, and, and to, to do with the question here, uh, we can do a lot without, even if we, I mean, first of all, people in each party need, we need, like, Democrats who are pro-life exactly. in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Pulling within the party, trying to Sorry. exert influence within the party, yeah. uh, as we need people who are Republican who need to be more environmental mm -hmm. interests. Yeah. And how can we expect the party to tell the line or come yeah. closer to us if we're not willing to go in and get our hands dirty or be labeled yeah. wrongly or whatever? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that this yonks, and this may be what you, what gets into what you mean, it's all sorts of organizations that are attached to these issues but are not attached to the party. In other words, look at the issues that are engaged in the environment and exerting political influence on pro-life. Yeah. You know, who are not members, are not joined to one party yeah. at the head. Yeah. But, but uh, do, and, and every other issue, issue that we could be concerned with, yeah. there's ways to have other people with us and not have to stand alone. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Over there. Yeah. Yeah. So... My question is kind of pulling the room, and you kind of you kind of mentioned you kind of talked about this at the end, so sort of expanding on it. Since it is so divisive and it is so easy to find your home in a party, how do you or everyone start conversations with people who have found? their home in a party and who are sort of digging deeper and deeper regardless of, you know, the president's actions. Because um, I feel like a lot of times it, it feels like we're, like, coming from two different senses of, like, reality. You know what I mean? It is. It is. Like, yeah. And so it's hard to feel like I can say anything without getting angry or like taking it very personally and like a you're for Trump and you're against me because I'm a woman you know what I mean mm -hmm. like I don't know and you run up against these blinders as I'm sure people do all the time talking to me too about mm -hmm. whatever um yeah so yeah. I just not have very much success yeah. in that area I mean I yeah um uh my father-in-law is um, sees the world very differently than I do um, I love him I respect him and we had a, a strong conversation in 2016 um, and one of the questions he asked me was and it's just I think he in many ways is like an exceptional person so I don't know if everyone can sort of ask this but he just said what do I not see 
Like, what do I not see? Help me, help me see with, and that just like was very helpful. And there, there was just a disarming um, through that that question. And I've I've used that question myself in, in speaking with others. But yeah, I think part of my hope is in framing this through the fact that we feel so many of us experience our like experience the world as unhomey as different and so we're look we like look like it hopefully that humanizes people that are mm-hmm. um, drawn especially to the extremes yeah. I just watched uh, I just saw a clip or sorry some pictures so did you, did you see a couple of week a week ago I mean it feels like it was a month ago but it was probably a week ago or more about this militia in Michigan that was trying to mm-hmm. kidnap yeah. the governor yeah. and the FBI was moving yeah. her around so they yeah. could gather more information. Yeah. Sort of like white white nationalist, anti-mask, pro-Trump um, militia. Um, and they all got arrested. You know, they wanted to kidnap okay. the governor. It was just, you know. Um, but they showed pictures of where the arrests happened, like the guy's home. And, I mean, he's just living in squat. Like, he's li- like his home is... He's living. In, he's deeply impoverished, um, and it's like, yeah, I could see why this guy would look to yeah. look to sort of radical right wing mm-hmm. politics to help ease the pain of having to live in this place and maybe not being able to provide for his kids, yeah. uh, and like the, the pain that comes from that. That in no way excuses or justifies or you know downplays the fact that. He tried to <laughs> try to kidnap a governor. You know, like it's a, it's terrible. Like mm-hmm. put her out of trial. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. it's just. Yeah. For, um, for treachery, I think for being treason. a traitor. Treason. Treason. Yeah, and just so. Yeah, hopefully, trying to sort of. I don't know. To, yeah. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts. But I'm really curious to hear from other people. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, well, I was just, just oh, going to have a question on Facebook. Especially because Dick brought up uh, co-belligerence. Um, someone's asking on Facebook how you would assess the legacy of Francis Schaefer and the development of single-issue politics that you are critiquing. Because he's saying that later Schaefer works seem to steer in that exact direction. Uh, I would have no idea. <laughs> I haven't. I, I'm not ad- adequately read in Schaefer, especially the later Schaefer, uh, to know that. But perhaps we disagree. <laughs> we see things differently. And also, 19, the late 80s were a different cultural different. moment than um, where we are today. But that, yeah. So. Yeah. Before I just before going further down that, does anyone else want to respond? But um could you just speak a little bit about, you know, engaging with this topic and civility? Because I I feel like this, you know, every particular election season this like the question of civility comes up, but it just seems like more and more like engaging in civil dialogue is just thrown out the, the window. So I I'd be curious like to your kind of your thoughts on. I think the forgiveness piece really gets to this, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, 
I I really like I like being angry. Like, I like <laughs> I like how it makes me feel, to be honest. Um, and I like being angry, especially at someone I don't know, uh, and, or someone who really could I could never get more of a whole picture on, or who sort of can be encapsulated by a tweet or. <laughs> Um, yeah, some ridiculous thing they've done. Like, I like being angry at people like that because uh, it makes me <laughs> it makes me feel better about myself. Um, uh, but that that I think has 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 formed like a disposition in me that is very judgmental um, and it, quick quick to be angry. Uh, so that when I have to actually speak with someone who's different than me, uh, who sees the world differently uh, than I do, it makes stability even harder. Uh, and so I've, I feel like I have had to sort of put some boundaries or have some sort of liturgical audit, though I wouldn't have used that phrase or that words had I not read this very helpful book by Caitlin Schiss. Um. Yeah, to sort of ask what's what's going on uh, within me, but yeah, I I just think too. Like I think there's legitimate reason for a lot of people to be very angry. <laughs> like I don't think it's illegitimate uh, all the time. I don't think anger is all wrong or all bad. Um, but there's uh, it's very easy to inherit someone else's perhaps justifiable ang- anger and make it make it your own so, and uh, that <clears throat> I think that comes through yeah through watching clips on social media through um, and I don't know it gives you that it gets your it gets all the juices flowing um, then anyway saying all those things I think that makes uh, civility hard but without without some sense of a shared humanity, a common good, there's no reason to be to be civil. Uh, I think, and I think when we, um, I'm trying to think of, well, I'm sort of struggling to know how to say it without um, putting people on blast, so to say, <laughs> and, and succumbing to it uh, myself. Um, can I circle back to that, or can anyone else? Does anyone else want to say something about I just civility? wanted to make the observation that I think what you just modeled in mm-hmm. reflecting on your own anger is 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 what you said. Uh, how self-examination is necessary political work, mm-hmm. and so like I think that that is a really helpful uh, thing for us to reflect on. You know, like what are what are my juices? You know, that I like to. <laughs> drink and feed um, but yeah I think I, I mean I just wonder like even being able to step back enough to ask someone like what are they really worried about you know when, at the end of the day you know to try and, and get to that sense of what are the things that are, are motivating each of us um, or worrying us like those are points of connection, I think. Yeah. And I, I guess I feel like the without um, 
some desire for civility, which comes from, like, it, if, maybe even civility isn't the right word. It, maybe more just, like, not retaliating or not, like, it's just treating someone with dignity, um, even when they're acting pretty foolishly uh, and stupidly and wrong-headedly. But I just think without that, like, we, I mean, we, this, yeah, this summer we saw uh, a 17-year-old boy with an a, a automatic weapon that he was legally not allowed to own cross the state border and shoot a protester. And then uh, not... And then we also saw uh, sort of a mega protester uh, who, who was killed in Portland. And neither side... I just feel like without some necessity to civility, to non-retaliation, to working together, like, violence will just... Violence is just the next option. If you don't have a moral imagination that wants to sort of find other ways to engage. And, I mean, this is where I think we all need some real lessons from the civil rights movement. Like, people talk about people that embodied non-retaliation and grace and forgiveness like in the face of 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 both ignorant but highly calculated and sophisticated evil Um, and so I don't know I think we just I'm just rambling now but yeah anyone want to say anything about either civility or helpful tips talking with folks that are just dug in on the other side. I don't want to run past that. Yeah. I think Marty's trying to yeah. Oh, Marty. yeah. Well, yeah, I was, I was just thinking, I, we talked to our son in Georgia recently, and his pastor is a very wise guy. He's been preaching a series of sermons on politics, and he's he is wor- working in a town in Georgia where there's been huge racial problems. It's the town where this runner, um, Ahmed Aubrey, was gunned down by some um, chased and gunned down and our son and a lot of people in the church have been involved were involved in protests after that but the, the pastor has been very careful not to come out and say who he's voting for kind of thing but but to, but trying to really encouraging the congregation to to not just talk to people that see things the way they see it not just listen to one you know not only listen to Fox News or not only listen to NPR, you know, but actually listen to the other side. And so what he what he's encouraged people to do and is and he and he's helping them find each other in the church is spend time with somebody who's on the who sees things completely differently. Mm-hmm. So our son, Tim, got a call from yeah. the pastor saying there's this man. He's he's very conservative. He says he doesn't know any liberals. He's never talked to a liberal. He doesn't know what a liberal is. Would would he? The pastor suggest someone that he could meet with. And the pastor suggested our son Tim, so who is actually very pro-life, was giving pro-life talks in high school here. You know, writing newspaper articles in secular schools. He's also an environment environmentalist. He's and a very you know thoughtful Christian. So they have got together. They got together for a meal. This this. Republican who'd never met a Democrat um, and who didn't think Christians could be Democrats um, has met together with Tim. Tim has feels the same way. Mm-hmm. Joshua, he's he has problems with the Democratic Party, but at any rate, anyway, he was quote he sort of got a laugh out of it. He was the liberal that the conservative <laughs> got to meet with, and they had a very fruitful conversation. And 
actually, this, as they talked, this guy said he'd never, he just never heard a lot of things that Tim said. And maybe Tim had never heard some of the things <laughs> this other guy said, but he wanted to get together again. But I thought that was a really helpful thing to do as a, as a church. Is, um, now, unfortunately, a lot of churches <laughs> only are only represent one party, right. you know. Mm-hmm. So you maybe have to branch out to some other churches yeah. if you want to have a civil conversations with Christians who are, who are committed to the theological view that we're all images of God, we're all fallen. So there's got to that that baseline theological recognition that that this person I disagree with is still an image of God, mm-hmm. yeah. and I am an image of God, but I'm also fallen. Mm-hmm. I have blind yeah. spots, and so does this person have blind spots. So it's sort of getting a level playing field in terms of trying to get some yeah. humility in the ground level. But anyway, I thought that was sort of a good idea, yeah. an interesting idea, and yeah. a helpful idea. Um, yeah, because so much of our, like, I think when we're beholden to, like, parties, uh, it's about winning for our party, and right. we forget that, like, you know, I think a lot of people are already sort of preemptively celebrating uh, Biden's, you know, victory, Uh which it's not there yet it's not there yet but like there's it's not like that's going to make all of our problems go away there are some massive social problems that politics can help uh can help but cannot i think adequately by themselves Mm. fix and like we have just apart without having civility or without a sense of the other side we've just pushed We've either followed sort of the uh, the most extreme voices to the extreme, or we've just felt ourselves pushed uh, to the extremes. And um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of relationships uh, uh, that could that need. I don't know. People need to be in relationships with with folks who see the world uh, differently than they do. Did you want to say something? A couple things. Is one thing that's interesting about that. Uh, story is that it's um, it seems to me like if, if the whole purpose of the interaction with somebody else is to engage on politics uh, it's a very difficult time to get anywhere mm-hmm. uh, because because people of opposite political poles uh, just know how to push each other's buttons you know, you know, <laughs> you know I can't, they come in with an absolute determination to be civil and then they said this like how could I? <laughs> and so it, it seems to me like that the, there, I don't know, civility is much more likely to happen in conversations between people that have some sort of like relational um, something to lose relationally. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Some some, some, sort of, some sort of relationship that is that is not just about about the political conversation. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, uh, which which would motivate us to listen longer. Um, and maybe I mean a lot of it's about self control, honestly. About <laughs> not you know, get, trying to get out of our heads and hear, hearing, okay, so this is what I want to say, and I may be convinced of it's true, but how is this other person going to hear it? Mm-hmm. And then what are they going to say in response? Um, yeah. I, don't know. I, I was um, going to say, what, uh, can I take it to a little bit of a different direction? Or, or can I say one thing sure, yeah, and, yeah. and then go right back to mm-hmm. it? I do think what is helpful are, uh, like, uh, to use some of 
language, like exemplars of human excellence, especially in this area. So we have we have models, we have heroes, we have people who we see embody uh, the, the sort of civility or the uh, ability to absorb uh, the very easy, easily strewn political vitriol. So, like spending time in all seriousness, spending time with Mister Rogers and seeing. Like how Fred mm-hmm. Rogers confronted all sorts of evils in his day, especially kind of trying to help children navigate them. Mm-hmm. Or the civil rights movement. I've been quite captivated this last year by this woman named Anne Atwater, who's worth looking up. And there was a movie made about her life that I haven't watched yet. But she was a woman uh, who, <coughs> um, uh, a black woman who was an activist in Raleigh, uh, or sorry, in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, 20 years after uh, Brown versus Board of Education, schools had not been integrated in Raleigh, and she was asked, the guy who was put in charge of it, who came from the federal government, uh, took the head of the KKK and then Ann Atwater and said, you guys have to figure out how to integrate the schools, or I'm going to force it. And her... Her way, uh, like, she is just a strong, powerful person, but part of it is because she's compassionate, and she, um, like, her power is in part her ability to forgive and absorb, but she befriends this, this guy, um, CJ, I forget still his name, out of, out of the KKK, and they become lifelong friends. They become best friends. Uh, she was the only person at his funeral, who mm. wasn't an immediate family member. Because uh, he had, like, no friends, because he left, mm. <laughs> he left, he found belonging in the KKK, mm. um, and she showed him a different way. Mm. Um, so I don't know, I think part of, part of, if we want to be civil, like, we have to shut off the nonsense of, on, on Twitter, we have to not listen to some of these uh, Christian leaders who maybe in the past were helpful for us, but I think at least on this point have proven to sort of not be faithful witnesses. Um, and so I think, I actually, I really find Justin Gibney, who's the head of the AIM campaign, he's a lawyer and political strategist in Atlanta, and he is a very gracious, thoughtful He's a big man. He played football at Vanderbilt. Um, he's incredibly articulate. Um, uh, and he just comes out, he comes out of the black church, he comes out of a tradition that's very different than mine, and he sees the world quite differently, but he's been very helpful. So I think finding, finding people who embody this sort of way you hope, hope to go about learning civility, learning how to have hard conversations, um, I think that's at least one way in, and those are, yeah, a few people that have been helpful for me. For me, but Ben, did you want to think yeah, about the Yeah, I had a conversation with a, with a, uh, a friend of mine who's a pastor recently, and we we were I think had some some different views um, politically, but a lot in common. And it was an interesting conversation. But one of the things he raised that I like to throw it out there too is just the because I, I I totally agree with with the things you said about sort of one issue. Politics and, and you know, you know it's basically the idea that if you're a Christian, it's a simple choice of just 
figuring out which uh, candidate is pro-life, and that's your choice. That's that's your choice. You <laughs> know, and um, I was sort of like, well, you know, similar to what Mar- what Marty Dick was saying that you know, uh, <clears throat> if you're really pro-life, it, it means is a uh, a vast array of different things we should be concerned of. If, if we're actually concerned with with human life, um, not just uh, a fetus. Right, and and so I in this conversation with him, I, I used the word flourishing, you know, which 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 granted is is, a, is kind of a buzzword among yeah, <laughs> Christians yeah. today. It's all about flourishing, human flourishing, and and his response was, well, you know, there's there's, um, and I agree with this. I think the word flourishing can be used so vaguely mm. to mean anything that I think is good for people, and. Um, and can kind of be a way of not wanting to think about the the sort of black and white nature of abortion, <laughs> which is like this is this is the there's all kinds of debate about environmental issues, what to what extent is to concern, to what what policies would actually serve creation better. Similar debates around racial justice, what would actually be better, you know? But when it comes to the abortion issue, it's an absolutely black and white thing that's being that's being done and it's just less am- ambiguous you know and so I, I think um, for me I'm wanting to say well yeah there's all kinds of aspects of human flourishing that, that should impact how we think politically not just abortion and I think to my friend I, it, it sounded like I was just kind of throwing the gate open wide to anything I feel is good, is good for people it's all about flourishing you know <laughs> And, and and not really um, taking seriously the gravity of this one issue, you know, because yeah. yeah. um, you could you could claim all kinds of different things were about human flourishing that actually aren't biblical at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, you could you could you could say human flourishing is all about abandoning any kind of sexual norms and, and just letting people do whatever they want. One, you know, that's, 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 that's nothing about flourishing, right? It's a, yeah, yeah. You need to define what you mean by that, uh, and of course, there's a very definite biblical understanding of what flourishing would entail. But, um, I just would like to just—that's not really a good question. But what, what are your thoughts on that? On the use of that that word, particularly because I I, I want to say actually, if I am pro-life, I should be concerned about the environment. I should be concerned about racial justice. I could because all of it has to do with human flourishing. Yeah. Um, and life, but life. Yeah. not yeah. all those issues have to do with just killing people outright. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, I think. I mean, uh, and I don't want to. This is not your. This is not your friend, but like, um, if there's any, like, it feels to me like, if there's debate, like, so all right, they want to say, yeah, I care about racism, and I care about. Um, what was the other the environment but I'm not sure about which policy sort of pursues that the best Mm -hmm. I would just want to say like I think that's actually true about the abortion issue like I'm not sure I'm not sure there's been as much I I mean even the the current president part of his COVID treatment uh, was stem cells from an unaborted child so it's not like he is this bastion of 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 pro-life and he this week did not he he sort of 
danced around when he was asked by Savannah Gunthery about uh, about overturning Roe v. Wade and just like mm. and I, it's just not to me in this case there's no clear pro-life yeah. there's not a pro-life option I don't yeah. think and I, but then I just don't think I just I'm less convinced that uh, I mean statistically there's less abortions now than there were when Roe v. Wade happened. Uh, so there, there's been a decline, and what contributes to all to that decline, I'm less convinced, is just by having a pro-life president. Like I think it's probably other sort of state legislation. I think it's it's this idea of mediating institutions about uh, 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 advocacy groups that will sort of walk alongside uh, mothers. Right. And, and help them, not just through the pregnancy, but after the pregnancy. Yeah. And I think so then also the coupling of, like, the pro-life ticket with meager, often meager sort of social social network to help right. help the poor is completely hypocritical. That's right. Uh, and it's, it's, it's one, maybe, it's at least, one, it's, it, to me, I, I, I have not heard a case on why those would go hand in hand. They seem to make no sense to me. Maybe saying they're hypocritical uh, is is sort of strong, is too strong. But you get the sense that it's sort of like we are going to walk with this. We care about this baby for the first nine months. And then when it's born, it's got to pull itself up by its bootstraps and it's got to contribute to society. Yeah. Like, it can't just be a mooch. And that is like I like it's crude, but it does it does feel as though sometimes you're you're it's sort of the same thing. So I would just at least want to say, policy wise or approaching the pro life issue is just not as simple as a presidential candidate saying one thing. That's also because I think the death penalty is a pro life issue. Absolutely. I think war is a pro life issue. Environment, like police brutality, is a pro life. Like all of these things have to be. It's sort of like one or the you can't get the the, the great title of pro life uh, and just sort of say it's only about yeah. one thing. And so then, in regards to the language of flourishing, I think it's a it's a super fair point. Like it, you can define flourishing uh, in any number of ways, but I think that at least the intention and coming from someone like you, uh, like I think there's some. Some substance to like, or some particularity on what flourishing looks like. It's not a sort of choose your own adventure uh, understanding of flourishing. And I mean, part of that is is because of like the like broadly speaking, the Christian tradition has some things we've agreed upon about what a good life looks like, and that has had to change, like because we've not been uh, as we haven't followed through on. I'm thinking particularly of, of slavery. I think of the civil rights uh, uh, movement. But um, so I would agree that flourishing can be thrown around, and it can uh, it can just be like an, an empty word. But I I think what it intends is that it shows like so often we quantify uh, uh, our society by like gross domestic product and all of these all of these things yeah. like yeah so and this is where I get frustrated with pro-life people that say you know pre, pre-COVID the economy is the best it's ever been mm-hmm. 
And well, for one, it hasn't. It was better <laughs> in the Clinton era. I, so, um, but the economy is better than it's ever been. That is not human flourishing because, like, suicide rates are higher than they have ever been. <laughs> we are not like like it is just we made up these we made up these means by which we're going to quantify mm. what our success in society looks like. Mm-hmm. And we can get rid of them. We made them up like 50 years ago. They're not like, they're not <laughs> from on high. They're not that old. And so I just think that's, that's absurd. Yeah, the economy's doing better than it ever has, but like wealth disparities are also higher uh, than they ever have. Exactly. And, and so like that can't just be can't be like the only the only means I think and so I get I get that like flourishing can be a like an an empty it's like a junk drawer word you just put in it whatever you want it to mean but having some sort of language that says there's more to a society um there's more to life, there's more to a culture than just like economic prosperity. Yeah. And that is just Yeah, and 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 yeah, political privilege, I think too. Like being privileged is something that Christians and uh, especially the white white Christians, white non Catholic Christians in America have had a pretty sweet uh, go of things and Having to let go of some of that is, I think, also not easy for people. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah. Did you want to say something? Yeah, well, I was just going to say along those lines, like, with something that does feel so black and white like abortion, uh, and is in a lot of ways so black and white like abortion, it can feel like we're contributing to human flourishing by making a blank state like a blanket statement of making this illegal but then in so many other ways i mean you can be like criminalizing a pregnant teenager or you know having a very unsafe illegal abortion happen and so i think like when we try to like compartmentalize human flourishing into like certain uh, platforms you like miss Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what you were saying too. It's a lot more holistic and involves a lot more intersectionality than we ever, you know, talk about. Yeah, and I think the way that that issue is often framed in political discourse, you're either pro mother or you're pro child. Right. And I just want to say, like, I don't buy into that. I want yeah. to be pro. I want to be pro both. Uh, like, I think so. Feminists for life. I highly recommend this organization, Feminists for Life, pro woman, pro life, and it's they're again they're not a Christian organization particularly, and they're not yeah. Democrat or Republican, but they're they're a great organization. Yeah, yeah. Dave, yeah, I, I just think that um, this working towards more civil discourse yeah. happens when we do start to acknowledge that other positions are are caring about things, have values. It's not like they're, we have values and they don't. Yeah. Like they, you know, mm-hmm. We're all trying to emphasize what we think is valuable. Mm-hmm. We might not be paying attention to other things, but to acknowledge that, to say, mm-hmm. oh, you know what, actually, mm-hmm. you care about something. And maybe even ask, like, what, what's the story there? I think mm-hmm. if someone's really angry, there's a story there to be heard. And mm-hmm. it's maybe hard to hear. That might not always help, but I think I've seen people... 
their anger comes down when you start asking, well, how did yeah. you get here? What, yeah. what, what got you to this point of, of being so angry and, and worked up? Um, but I think it also, it's hard. I think there are multiple values at work. And when, even when you come to that point, it's still very difficult because now you're like, well, what should I put as a priority? Because, um, there are real values in conflict in the world. Yeah, and now right. we have to make choices. We have to vote with that as a reality. And that's, um, yeah. and it's to take that into account for other people. So not just to maybe, I know people vote and it sounds like they're a one issue voter when it comes to abortion, but it might be that they're, they're like, I care about all these things too, mm-hmm. but I just feel this is so important. Yeah. I'm voting with this as the most weighty thing for me, even though I care about the environment, you know. So I just think it'd be good to keep that in mind too for for people who have abortion up front, but it might not be that they don't care about anything else. Right, right, right. <laughs> just yeah. like yeah. other people are have yeah. a, or they're voting yeah. with something else in mind. It's not because they don't care about anything else, yeah. but they just think this is more significant or this pulls more weight. Um, to have that in our minds yes. for for other people. Yeah, I think that's, them, I yeah. think like those folks need like a good PR campaign to sort of let folks know that is because like what I mean when it's framed through your your pro mother or your pro child to both sides, the other side is not just the other side is immoral. Like yeah. it's offensive. Like, how could you, you know, like, and so they're coming at it with totally different moral taste buds, totally different moral frameworks, and different values. And so to find ways, I think what you're saying is, is, yeah, to find ways to acknowledge that they're, it's not that you're just some, uh, like, degenerate who doesn't care, or what, it's like you actually are someone with, I, when I grew up, conservatives were like the moral ones, and Democrats were kind of like loose. And I feel like somewhere along the way, things have changed uh, pretty dramatically through sort of the libertarian stream in in Republicanism, and then through especially the last four years, like um, that like supposed moral high ground, moral majority, family first stuff really has sort of fallen away. Um, and so I, I think the left often has like the moral high ground in, in discourse, or at least perceived to. And I think to a generation younger than us, it definitely does. Um, and so, yeah, finding ways to acknowledge acknowledge that. But then also, yeah, having a PR campaign to say, hey, we're not... We're, yeah, like, we're not just, like, I don't know, to change the perception, uh, so that people know, even if this is the main reason why I'm voting, I still care about these other things. And I think uh, the alignment with conservative politics has, has made it hard for people to say that. It's made it hard for them to say, I care about these other things as well, um, yeah, like in like in the fire department, you have priorities. So if you go into a fire, your number one priority is life. You're like, is there a person in the building? That's our priority. And the second priority is the building, 
we're going to save the building if we can. The third priority is the exposures, everything outside of it. So it's like the fire department would say, it's not we don't care about exposures or a building, uh, but it's like, man, our first priority is, is this life. And so I think that's, I think that's in work in everybody's mind. They've got these values, um, but they've got these priorities worked out, and they're, and we don't all have the same ones. And so it's good to, I think it's good to acknowledge that and realize yeah, yeah. that's what's at play. Um, and what do we, yeah, how do can, we deal with that? I just, I just wanted to say something to the question that about Francis Schaefer being a single issue person. Okay. I don't know if this yeah. will get uh, get the person that asked it because. Um, as you, as you said, it was a very different time politically. He was obviously very engaged in the pro-life issue. But we heard him say over and over again, he could never belong to a church that was racist. He stood very much against against racism, welcomed Africans, such of people came, came to Labrie who were treated with great dignity. And he also is the first evangelical to write a book on environmental responsibility. He wrote Pollution and the Death of Man, which is the first evangelical book on the environment. So, so he was not actually, he wasn't in his person. We knew him well. We heard him on and on. He was not a single issue person, but he was very engaged in the pro-life issue at the time. He, what he did push for was wanted the freedom to think through each individual issue as a Christian biblically. Right. And not be pushed into a package exactly. and not be able to do that. But then not to say that let's choose one and make that the whole thing, our whole right. political agenda. Right. Let's put them all together and then do the best we can in terms of who to vote for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't uh, single-issue politics of that you've been arguing against here. Mm-hmm. Of, of It's only the the, the, uh, the abortion issue that we need to care about. Forget everything else. Not at all. Uh, it's, it's rather, I want to be able to biblically wrestle with every issue and not being told by a party and what, okay. I, should, what I should want or vote for. Yeah. Also, on the... I think backing up what you were saying, one of the problems in the Christian right, going back to the Falwell Senior, that so many people have said, is that they thought if we change the laws, we will win. All we need to do is change the laws. And many people from within it have said, you forget that we've got to change what we really want to change the culture. (laughs) And then they will want the right laws. Uh, and, and that's much harder to do, to change a culture. And nobody has the patience for that or the love for that, to change what people actually want. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, even if Roe were, were thrown out, that just puts it in, the, in, in, in each state's hand. It doesn't end abortion. And, and, uh, so we, and, and the, our danger is that we will so drive people crazy by our, our animosity mm-hmm. uh, that we will have very little cultural leverage. Yeah. I think that's already true. It's already Particularly true. with the Good Trump time. years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the church has been shamed in the ability to evangelize it, let alone Absolutely. have the cultural influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Nick? Yeah. Um, my comment is sort of just building on a couple of things people have said, um, but particularly, Eleanor, sort of your question about, like, how do you know? How do you how do you respond to people who are, you know, maybe opposite voting for a candidate that you would be particularly against or, or feel particularly victimized by? And I wonder if if part of a, a way of responding is taking sort of what you're talking about as we can't we can't view voting as a sort of holistic. 
like self-expression and not just applying that to our own voting, but applying it also to other people's voting. Hmm. Um, like you're extending grace. Yeah, yeah because, yeah. I mean, if we're going to apply it to ourselves and say, okay, we have to mm-hmm. be able to vote, even if, even if we disagree with that candidate, then we have to be able to apply that same understanding to someone else. Yeah. And, like, that's, that's a hard thing to do because, like, there are candidates that I don't want people to, to vote yeah. for, right? Yeah, yeah. But... Um, but at the same time, if we are going to apply that to ourselves, it feels like we also have to apply it to other people and enter into those conversations, yeah. even if they're voting for someone who we, you know, we would say is a racist or whatever. It's like, okay, well, are they critical of that part, or are they are they actually pro that part? Yeah. And then get more into the details of and yeah. not view like it's really easy to sort of apply that gray that that sort of self expression grace to ourselves. Like, okay, well, I'm voting for this candidate, but yeah. like. You know, I'm, I'm critical of this part of them or whatever, yeah. but not apply that to other people. Yeah. Um, and it seems like if we are going to apply it to ourselves, we have to apply it to others as well. Yeah, which has to come through conversations, which mm-hmm. maybe have to be uh, strategically organized by pastors or mm-hmm. by other... Yeah, but, yeah. you know, yeah, that's a great... Yeah. Yeah, Winter. Uh, a couple questions ago when uh, we were talking about Ben's friend and that whole idea of Flourishing, like right at yeah. the end of that, you mentioned uh, it was a couple of questions ago, but you mentioned um, something about a lot of white non-Catholic Christians having to give up certain privileges, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could expand on that because there might be a yeah. few uh, white non-Catholic Christians in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, I, I think I just meant like that. In many ways, the the people with the, the most um, sort of power to make the laws, to enforce the laws, to benefit from the laws, have been uh, have been um, have, have been white Protestant uh, Christians, and uh, so there's um, yeah a sense that that is being. For, for some of, for some for some folks in that category, there's a sense where that privilege that they've had is being taken away or being threatened. Uh, their way of life is being threatened, and um, that is a, an understandably hard thing to let to let go of. Uh, so that's sort of what. I'm, does that make sense? Or yeah. Like, yeah. Do you feel that's like common people who are white Protestant um, um, Republicans like in your Yes. Experience? Uh, so this uh, this was a profoundly uh, boring book. Uh, <laughs> it's called "Taking America Back for God: Christian Nationalism in the United States." It's by two sociologists, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. I mean, it's not the most boring uh, <laughs> book, I suppose, but it's like not I, the most boring ever, ever. Yeah, not the most boring ever, ever, ever. Um, But I thought it would be significantly less sort of like academic sociology with everything being with tables and graphs and charts and stuff. Um, But that's what it turned out to be. But they argue uh, for something called uh, Christian Christian nationalism, which is sort of a a loose, um, in some ways it's a loose sort of broad category. But they would say that category of, of 
these people. It is, it's also an equation, sort of an equating of America with it being a, like a, a, a particularly chosen nation by God. So mm-hmm. we have a particular sort of divine origin and a divine call. It gets conflated with the culture of of, of white Protestant Christians. Um, they're trying to make the point that that sort of loose belief system is actually not orthodox Christianity uh, and actually has some pretty heretical yeah. strains to it or, or, or it can manifest that way. Thinking of like the Republican convention this year where the vice president reframed the words of Hebrews and said fixing our, instead of fixing our, let's run the race before us, fixing our eyes on the cross, instead of fixing our eyes on old glory, uh, you know, the American flag. And so they are arguing that that group of people, that sort of, mm-hmm. it's, it's brought, like, they have benefited quite a bit, and they are not wanting to let go, even though as their numbers sort of continue to decrease. Uh, did that answer? Yeah. I just feel like I spent all this time reading this book, and just being like, what is this book? <laughs> I just wanted to bring it into one thing tonight. Um, it was like six bucks on Amazon. Um, but, yeah, so, anyway, does anyone else have any other thoughts or comments or questions? Or, if not, what's that? I feel like we could talk about this all night. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, yeah. uh, you know, so we're going to vote on the first Tuesday in November. Um, do you have thoughts for the first Wednesday in yes, November? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And the first Wednesday. Yeah. Some yeah. votes will still be being counted. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absentee yeah. ballots. Yeah. Or like, you know, along the lines of what you said of, you know, our citizenship isn't just our, our voting. Like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, that is yeah. an important part, but like, so the candidate we vote for doesn't get elected, or does get elected. <laughs> like how to how to yeah. how to wake up the next day. Yeah. So I I, I that's a good it's a it's a good question. Mm-hmm. It's a good point from Marty. I think we'll probably have to punt <laughs> the punt it to at least two weeks after the election. I think there's going to be a lot of contesting. Uh, that has been clear. Um, we should pray though. We we should, we pray, should pray, really pray. Yeah, that perhaps. That it's clear enough. Um, but, yeah, the last, I'll just say this, is a bit of, maybe I can end on this bit of uh, confession. Uh, yeah, last election, we watched the election in this room. We watched the results coming in. I was holding my nose, voting. Uh, this might lose any credibility I have with a lot of people. Voting, voted for Hillary Clinton, assuming she was going to win. I was not excited. Um, and when she lost... I just, I just was, I was so shocked and so surprised. And the next morning at breakfast, we served breakfast at a group of Liberty students that were here. And there were people that had been up crying uh, and were so hopeless and so shocked and so disappointed and gutted. And I realized I was too. Uh, and I struggled to know what to say. Um, and so I have decided going in... So this year, like, whatever, whatever, I mean, I, who, maybe I'll put this, whoever wins, uh, because I don't want to say whatever happens, because there are some 
potential scenarios that could happen that are, are very, very, bad. very, very bad. And we saw some hints of that potentially with this militia trying to kidnap yeah. the governor. Um, but yeah, I, I want to wake up the next morning and, uh, yeah, know that God is in control, that Jesus is Lord, and that my my politics are not determined either by who's ever in the office in the sense that I want to go with them or that I just want to say the exact opposite of what they do. Like, my politics come from a citizenship in heaven, and my work is to spread the culture of heaven in a world that is unheimlich and uh, try to make it uh, a place that more resembles the home that God wants that the world was made to be and that it will one day be again. Um, so I'm just not going to as long as, yeah, as long as there's an actual decision that isn't followed by um, uh, vi- like mass violence, as long as there's a peaceful mm-hmm. transition of power. I really hope there's a transition of power. Absolutely. But as long as there's, like, yeah, I will just, I will say my morning prayers and enter into the day. Because it's another day that the Lord has made for us to rejoice and be glad of. So... Um, maybe we'll stop there. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank, you, thank you. So is Heimlich uh, related to the Heimlich maneuver or not? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, that's that's a great, great question. It's a great question. <laughs>